This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this witness. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Hello and welcome to episode three of The Wigs, the only podcast to feature three practicing barristers talking shop. Those barristers are Felicity Graham, Emmanuel Kirkasharian, and Stephen Lawrence. I'm your host, non-lawyer, and by default, non-wig, Jim Minns. In this episode, The Wigs will be discussing the legal issues posed by pill testing at music festivals, the recent UK Supreme Court case of Miller, in which Boris Johnson's prorogation of the UK Parliament was struck down, and lastly... The Wigs will discuss the age of criminal responsibility and the growing calls to increase it from 10 to 14 years of age. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let me introduce to you Felicity Graham. Hi Jim, good to be with you tonight. Lovely to have you back. Stephen Lawrence. Jim, how are you? Very good, thank you very much. And Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Hey Jim. Hello, lovely to see you all again. We're going to jump straight into topic number one. And this week we're introducing with Stephen Lawrence and the topic is pill testing. Stephen, could you please fill us in on the latest? Yeah, thanks, Jim. So I'm glad that we're doing this because it hasn't not been in the media, I think, for the last two years. It's constantly uh, coming up as an issue. Uh, So pill testing, in short, is a process where a facility is provided at a music festival for people who are taking illicit drugs to a music festival to have that illicit drug uh, subjected to a testing process and uh, that person is then given advice about whether, uh, firstly, the illicit drug is what they think it is. Um, It's very common, I think as most people would know, for music festival goers to take ecstasy um, along with them and then take it, which I'm told increases the pleasure of listening to the music. Right. Um, However, it's not uh, always ecstasy, and there can be other drugs that are sold as ecstasy, Mm -hmm. um, and indeed lots of um, impurities that can be put into illicit drugs. Right. Um, So pill testing provides a facility for people uh, to get the drug tested and also to get advice about the dangers of the drug um, and get advice about whether, as I've said, it is what they think it is and whether it contains a known impurity. Right or whether it contains things that are not known to the tester. Who is the tester in this uh, hypothetical situation, which doesn't exist yet, but could, should this legislation pass? Yeah, so it's been trialled in the ACT, and it's been a collection of non-government organisations and people who've done it. People who've done the drugs or people who've done the testing? Like, who've done the testing. Right. Yeah, okay. who've done the testing. So, okay, right. mm. run it through a machine, I imagine? I'm yeah. Guessing. Yeah, so practically what happens is you walk um, into the testing tent, okay. which as I understand it is co-located with the medical services that are generally provided at festivals. Right. Just go to the longest line, I imagine. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because the trial, that uh, the results of which were released recently from the ACT festival, I think showed 171 pills were tested. Mm. Didn't seem to me to be a huge amount. Yeah. I mean, it's a big thing for a person maybe to walk into a tent which has an official vibe about it and hand over an illicit drug. I suspect a lot of people wouldn't be willing to do it, and it's Mm. certainly not 
uh, completely normalised yet. No, that's a very good point. So, uh, but why is it controversial? I mean, yeah. So just on how it's done. So you walk into the tent firstly. You, um, you walk in to the tent. You hand over your pill initially. So you transfer the custody of the pill to the tester. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pill tester takes a scraping of the pill and then returns the pill to you. Mm-hmm. And then they put it through um, a spectrometer, I think it's called, which is a testing thing, mm-hmm. uh, some sort of scientific uh, instrument. Yeah. They then screen it through their scientific methods against a database of known drugs, which is obviously a very big one. Yeah. Um, not everything is caught by it, though, yeah? No, not everything. And to exhaustively test a drug, my understanding is you would need a minimum 24 hours, and it's quite an involved uh, scientific process. Yeah, so pill testing at festivals, and this is part of the criticism of it, uh-huh. is not exhaustive. Okay. Um, you are then referred um, on the spot to um, a medical, um, a medically trained person mm-hmm. who advises you of the outcome and also advises you of the danger of the drugs. And it should be emphasised, I think, you're advised of the danger um, of the drug, even if it's um, a drug that you think it is, Mm. and even if it doesn't contain um, other impurities and so forth. Mm. And you are then given the option um, of disposing of the drug, so you don't have to keep it, obviously. Mm. And uh, the initial trials, certainly in Australia, show that uh, quite dangerous substances have been detected, and those then um, have been abandoned. So, yeah, certainly effective, effective in terms of detecting certain impurities. Quite a process, too. Wow. It's almost like an airport scan at a music festival. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like akin to. Mm. But no one's died yet. So they haven't... If it's not exhaustive, presumably there's still the potential for someone to have their drug tested. You're Emmanuel Gershner referring to the ACT trial when you say no one's died. Well, I'm saying around the world. I think it's it's happened in other places. Okay. I don't know if if it's so non-exhaustive, so Mm. that that remains a possibility. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, it is certainly possible for a pill to be tested and then a person to die as a consequence of ingesting the pill Mm. because not everyone that dies, for example, from ecstasy, dies from an impurity. Mm. Uh, Some people die because they take too much. Some people die because uh, they ingest too much fluid. Mm. Some people die because of certain reactions. And that is part of the criticism of pill testing, that you essentially have a medically trained person, if not the state, involving themselves in a testing process and then the return of the drug to a person in circumstances where it might kill them, and that gives rise to all sorts of duty of care issues. Mm. And because of the non-exhaustive nature of the testing, there's also this criticism that it gives people a false sense of um, confidence Mm. if they're told, yes, this is the drug that you thought it was, that person might um, have some confidence in what their experience is with that drug, but Mm. there might be impurities in it that can't be detected or haven't been detected at that point. Yeah, and certainly the response on behalf of advocates is to say, well, far from telling people that it's safe, in fact, the advice that you will get is that it's not safe. Mm. So that's one response to that. But I think in reality, you're obviously going to have a certain amount of people who are going to buy pills and take them to a festival if testing is widely available, they'll get them tested. Mm-hmm. If they're told that it's MDMA, then they will get a sense of assurance from that and they may well be likely perhaps to to take more than they might have intended to do if they didn't know that it was just MDMA. Mm. So it's certainly a valid issue that arises, mm. whether it's a comprehensive answer 
uh, to the question of whether it's an appropriate facility or service or not mm. um, is another question. What do you think? Do you think there should be pill testing widely available? Yeah, oh, look, I think um, if you're adopting harm minimisation principles, the trials certainly seem to suggest that it removes potentially deadly drugs from music festivals. Um, mm. The argument against it maybe is a bit of a slippery slope argument, which is that if it's widely available at every festival, then you may have a growing sense in the community that ecstasy is actually safe because if you go to a festival, you can have it tested. <coughs> um, if it contains impurities, you'll be told, even though that's not necessarily true, and that might lead, I suppose, to more use. Um, but when you're applying harm minimisation principles, you know, maybe the obligation is, is to act on the direct evidence, act on the short-term outcomes... And the floodgates argument uh, perhaps has to be measured over time. Yeah. I mean, either ecstasy is bad for you or it's not, is where I land. And either, if it's not bad for you, if that's if pure or good quality ecstasy is not bad for you, then let's legalise it. And if it is bad for you, well, then let's discourage it. Um, and let's look at the science on that. Harm minimisation, if it is in fact bad for you, and I don't know that that's true. In fact, I suspect it's not true. But if it is bad for you, then the harm minimisation seems to fall into this balancing act of, as you say, Stephen, encouraging people to take it vis-à-vis, stopping them from taking the bad stuff. Uh, but it seems to me that the better way is to legalise it, control it, use the money from taxing it to pay for the um, assistance for those people who need it. And I fear with things like this, and I don't know whether the ACT trial has a legislative... Uh, basis for it. I no, fear. Well, no, so, it so I fear for the technicians who <clears throat> may be guilty of offences, but I also fear for the ideas of the rule of law in circumstances where we've said something is so criminal that I mean, suppliers of ecstasy can go to jail for decades. Mm. That's how criminal we say this substance is. If it's really that serious, then let's treat it that way. Otherwise, let's fix up the law to reflect the reality. Mm. Yeah, and look, thinking about it through the perspective. <coughs> of criminal liability um, and decriminalisation is quite useful in terms of exploring why it's controversial, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, particularly the, in terms of the testers' potential liability. So. Yeah, yeah. so a number of issues seem to come up, and I know that there um, has been legal advice given on this, and I haven't been able to get a copy of it. I did try, but the main liability issues that have been thrown up are, firstly, is the person doing the testing when they take... Uh, custody of the pill and scrape it um, and then test the scraping, are they breaching the criminal law through being in possession um, of an illicit substance? That seems to be the first issue. Being, um, the, being the scraping component or I, being the pill that I they think take initially the pill that they take of... for the purpose of returning mm. and then the scraping that they take for the purpose um, of testing and then destroying. Mm. Scraping is obviously destroyed. Mm. Um, and look, like all of these legal issues in this, in, on this particular issue, it's a grey area. I mean, possession in the criminal law does not have all the complexities of possession in the civil law, and generally having something in your custody um, is good enough to be possession. Mm. Um, it might be defence to a supplier charge that you have a different intention in respect of it, uh, but generally if you've got something in your hand, you're in possession of it. Though I think in respect to possession there'd be... Um, a de minimis um, argument, which is basically a legal principle that says 
the law doesn't concern itself with trifles mm. and a so scraping of illicit substance scraping. Yeah, mm. might be considered trivial. Though if you're someone possessing numerous scrapings mm. over an extended period of time, maybe de minimis. Your own pills out of those scrapings. Yeah, is that really a trifling example of possession? Um, yeah, possession. Mm. It might not be. Another one that arises is does the person who scrapes the pill and then return the pill commit the offence of supply? Mm. Because they've been in possession of the drug and then are they've handed it back to someone mm. and normally transferring custody of a drug is supply. Even if it's not for financial gain. Yeah, so, under New South Wales law. Exactly, indeed, yeah. Indeed. So. Although temporary possession to hand back to someone is not supply. Yeah, the carry defence generally, yeah, yeah certainly yeah. comes to mind. Um, that's reference to a case of carey, C-A-R-E-Y, which basically says that if you smuggle a drug, for example, into a music festival for a person intending to return it to them, but that person um, having given it to you and then you smuggle it in, you're not guilty of supply for returning possession to them. Or if you have it in your home, for example, for the purpose of returning it to them. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, indeed. Mm. Yeah. How could you argue that? I mean, that's we're not about, supply. Yeah, but we're talk, I mean, it would be a, a presumably a cash transaction if it was a deal. So how would you go, oh, no, 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 so no, no, no just no, returning no. it. No, no. It's not the circumstance of a deal. It's mm. where I say to you, Jim, can you take this pill in for me, mate? Right, right, I right. hand you the pill, we walk through the gates, you hand it back to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In those circumstances, you're probably not guilty. And so this mm. was of an supply. Actual, of supply. Oh, right, right, right. But this was an actual case. Was it? Yeah, so oh, Kerry was. it yeah, just sounds exactly. like... Like the excuse anyone would give if you were caught with a pill. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And a lot of people avail themselves of the carry defense yeah, yeah, no, the when they're caught defense. smuggling drugs into festivals. Yeah, no, yeah. Might. yeah, because they're normally charged with supply. And then right. they will raise this defense of essentially they were returning it to the person that had shortly before been in possession of it. Of because in New South Wales, if you have um, a certain quantity of a prohibited drug in your possession, then there's a deeming provision that says, well, the assumption is that you have that amount of drugs because you, you intend to supply them to someone. Yeah, OK. Mm. Because the amount of drugs is more You're than what is... You're not going to take those. You're right. dead. Uh, yeah, but what right. would blow your mind is how low the numbers are. Oh, OK. Mm. So I'd, it can be a handful of pills, like five pills in certain circumstances, depending on the drug, can put you into that supply category. Mm. But you, if you took... Five pills, wouldn't you be dead, though? Wouldn't There's lots of people who do that in an afternoon. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it depends on the substance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the strength of ecstasy, for example, has dramatically dropped in Australia, is my understanding. Oh, is that right? Yeah, How so that pre... Right? So pre... <laughs> not through personal experience, <laughs> through involvement in the criminal law. Oh, yes, of course. As a lawyer. Yeah, so pre that sort of Howard government era, where they significantly ramped up customs uh, expenditure right. and so forth yeah um yeah ecstasy in australia was much more plentiful and more pure uh, yeah. yeah quality they, has definitely diminished is my understanding right they've cut back on the methylamine for all the breaking bad lovers out there now uh is there any uh aside from the obvious controversy around um the questions of supply what do the police think about um pill testing in music festivals, because <clears throat> I know that they have a presence at these events. I Stephen. think it depends on... I mean, they're part of the executive government, and I think it generally depends on the view of the executive. Uh, so in the ACT, for example, where we saw Australia's first trial of pill testing, 
Uh, the ACT government was supportive of it. They instructed the ACT police not to uh, police effectively uh, the pill testing tent. So, okay. not, for example, to stand outside the pill testing tent, see everyone that walks out and treat that as reasonable yeah. suspicion to search. Yeah, exactly. And that's the fundamental controversy about it because you know if there's a pill testing tent that people are in there in possession of drugs and you know that the testing process is is occurring mm. and police have powers if they reasonably suspect possession is occurring to to step in, stop people, search people and so forth. Mm. So essentially the ACT police, um, as an operational matter, uh, made the decision to effectively turn a blind eye, is my understanding. Yeah. Um, in New South Wales, I know that the former police minister, Troy Grant, was a vehement opponent of pill testing, mm-hmm. and that attitude still continues here. Mm-hmm. So if someone was to set up a pill testing tent in a festival in New South Wales, I think they would quickly find themselves raided by the police, and there could be these issues around criminal liability of the tester mm-hmm. as well. Um, so the, the liability issues are quite, I think, complicated in terms of that scenario where someone does experience some harm as a result of ingesting a pill that's being tested. So my understanding is that when a person is given the information about the pill that's being tested, they aren't told, you know, this is safe or unsafe. They're told effectively a sort of colour code system where white means that the drug is what the festival goer thought it was. Yellow means it's a substance other than what they were expecting and red means that the drug is potentially deadly. Mm. But if they hand back or they've already handed back a drug that um, the testing has revealed is potentially deadly, that seems to me to sort of really raise this problem in terms of any liability that the tester has. Well, the tester can hand... Oh, because the tester doesn't have a right not to give it back. Yeah, correct. And in fact, it's been handed back prior to the testing. That's right. Because it's only been scraped that's tested. So if you get a situation where the drug tests uh, positive red... Mm. So let's say, you know, they find cyanide in it. It's already in possession of the person. And the pill tester has no legal authority to to stop and search the person and take it from them. So Mm. the person can waltz out of the tent uh, with the deadly pill in their hand and take it. Uh, I mean, another interesting legal issue, I think, is that, which is probably the strongest of the liability concerns, is that it's an offence in New South Wales to self-administer a drug. And I can imagine a situation where a person has a pill tested um, and he's given the advice. They then walk out, they take it. The person becomes gravely ill. And then the person um, either reports it to police or it becomes known to police. And the person says to police, well, look, I wouldn't have taken it except for the fact that I got the advice that it was what I thought it was and it was just ecstasy. And I can imagine a charge being laid of aiding and abetting self-administer. If you've got a person saying, I wouldn't have taken it but for, Mm. and you've had the person test it and provide the advice and then the person takes it, Mm. it would seem to me there could, I don't know what you guys think, but there could be a case there for, for accessorial liability yeah, or you yeah, what do you think, Manny? I, well, I think maybe. I don't know whether in practice that would be charged. What came to mind while you were saying that was that you can imagine the situation where that person then dies mm. and the test has been stuffed up in some obviously negligent way. Mm. And then do you have a negligent manslaughter case? Yeah. Mm. Or civil liability. Well, yeah. Uh, mm. In terms of the ACT trial, I know that they 
signed up all the testees with a consent form where they waive civil liability. Okay. Now, that's an interesting proposition in the context of people who might already be drug affected, mm. uh, people who might be under 18, all sorts of circumstances where generally a waiver of civil liability is mm. not going to be effective. So in a way, I think the civil liability issues are maybe more problematic than the criminal liability issues, which sort of leads me to the conclusion that if this is going to happen, it probably should be pursuant to a legislative uh, reform, um, a special act that provides for pill testing, puts in place processes and procedures and waives criminal and civil liability. How did they do the injection centre, the medically supervised injection centre? Was that done... Through an act of parliament. Through an act of parliament, yeah. Yeah. It's not an offence to possess an illicit substance in the injecting room and it's not an offence to self-administer it. Yeah. And the police, I think, are excluded from searching people around it? Or There's all sorts yeah. of special provisions, yeah. yeah. If pill testing is legalised, does that open up the possibility to enterprise an engagement like pill testing at a festival? Felicity, what do you think? To make a commercial yeah. Can operation Can people come in and there? set up tents and go, yeah. we'll test your pills, five bucks a pill? Sure. I mean, I think the people involved so far um, are involved pursuant to this harm minimisation... It's a community service. ...approach, yeah. And, yeah, but I I don't see... I mean, even the festival operators could have it as part of their selling point for... Exactly. Right, includes... Your drugs tested on the mm. spot. There's mm. plenty of websites. I'm just looking at one right now, which I won't read out, but it's test for ketamine, ecstasy, cocaine, and more. Mm. Um, and well, you can, you can buy these things online. Yeah, these oh. are commercial enterprises. Mm. I mean, your own personal pill t- testing, testing kit. Mm. Uh-huh. I mean, something tells me that if this is going to be rolled out, you know, particularly through an act, that it's going to be something that the state is going to end up involved in in a pretty significant way, just because of the complex ethical, moral and liability issues. Yeah. So and I don't think it's, it's going to be some laissez-faire approach where anyone can set up a pill testing tent. It's too profoundly challenging to, you know, ethical and moral sort of parameters, I think, to have it done that way, mm. which then raises a resource issue because there's it? a lot of attention um, um, and focus on these deaths at festivals, yet they're fairly few and far between. We really haven't had that many deaths at pill festivals. Everyone is obviously terrible, but uh, the overall numbers are not big. For example, opiate-related deaths are much, much bigger. Mm, I mean, we mm, have, mm, mm. Um, in central West New South Wales, uh, over the previous five years, I think it's 150 to 200 opiate-related overdoses mm. and deaths. So there's a real question about the focus on the pill testing and the justification on, on public health grounds so for, <coughs> yeah, for deploying these resources, mm. I think. It's a sexy topic in a sort of dark way, yes. but I think that's because um, an ecstasy pill overdose is something that strikes terror into every parent because they immediately think, oh, my God, this could be my child because it's such a broad cross-section you know, of young people who attend these festivals that it has that spectre of it could happen to anyone, mm. whereas people aren't so concerned maybe about the sort of people that are dying from opiate-related deaths. Right. But there's a public health issue there, I think, mm. in terms of how you deploy, how you how you choose what to deploy resources on. Mm. Could I bring your attention to the findings of the coroner's court and what influence that has 
on this particular issue? Because I know that Premier Gladys Berejiklian uh, <laughs> recently uh, ignored the advice, if I read it correctly. I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate, how I've relayed that. Who wants to um, continue this one? I think it's important to start with what happened in terms of the coroner has not yet released her report. Ah. The coroner conducted an inquiry right. into deaths from drugs. Uh, her draft report was released by somebody, one of the agencies or some person who was in possession of it. Uh, that draft report recommended or had a draft recommendation that pill testing occur. Right. Uh, the Premier of New South Wales came out and said, no, right. uh, not going to let it happen. Um so that's basically the political position. Right. The opposition said, well, we'd allow a limited trial of that, but ultimately, you know, we're against drug use. So I think I think the political position is very much both sides of Parliament say we are against drug use generally and are very reluctant to go take any step that is seen to be soft on drug use. Mm. Which seems to be contrary to some of the evidence around the world, in Portugal and other places, where a genuine health approach, harm minimisation approach has been taken, decriminalisation of possession and use of small amounts of drugs has had profound um, success Mm. in terms of addressing what really is a social and health issue rather than one that should be sort of shoved into the criminal justice system and the blunt tools that it has to deal with um, this issue. So and that's part of the problem with you know this proposal of pill testing. I think it's it's a one-off sort of proposal in the mm. sense that we have this general regime of criminality, as you were talking about before, Manny, and not much in terms of harm minimisation, in terms of how that regime applies or doesn't apply. And then in that context, all of a sudden, there's this proposal to pill to pill test at festivals, mm. uh, but just at festivals. Mm. It just and seems to be this an it's anomalous. Anom- it's anomalous in a sense, um, and I suppose that's part of the concern by people opposed to it because they they see it as that, and they see it as more, which is as a stalking horse for decriminalisation. Uh-huh. And I suppose in one way it is because once you you admit the logic of it, and you admit that. You should be treating it as a health issue. You should be accessing people using it. You should be testing it. You're making a lot of the arguments, in mm. fact, for decriminalisation. You should be connecting them to doctors who give them, can give yeah. them advice. You're accepting the... the underlying principles mm. that would lead you down the path of decriminalisation. Welcome back to The Wigs. This is episode three, coming at you from Sydney. As always, uh, we are going to jump into topic number two, which is pro... pro, 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 pro. Prorogation. Thank you, Manny. Pro, por- no, now I can't say it. Manuel Kirk is sharing, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Take it away. Uh, okay, so I'm going to start right back in the 1950s, when three international bodies were established by treaty, or by a series of treaties, with the ostensible aim of providing an economic union in Europe, Um, The UK was not a signatory of those treaties until about 1973. In 1975, a referendum was held as to whether or not the UK should participate in the common market, that is the economic aspect of the European community, uh, and about 67% of people voted yes. Um, In 1993, the economic 
community became uh, foreign policy, military, justice, uh, more broad community with the formation of the European Union, with the signing of the Maastricht Treaty, that was never put to a referendum. Uh, in 2016, a referendum was held in the United Kingdom and Gibraltar, uh, where about 52% of people voted to leave the European Union. That's Brexit. So what's happened after that is there's been an attempt to affect Brexit. There's been a few court cases about it. There's been a few attempts at doing it. Uh, and ultimately, it brought down a prime minister and another one came in who started playing hardball. That's Boris. Mm -hmm. um, and what happened is that the parliament of the United Kingdom sought to force his hand... And he tried to say, well, look, we're going to force what's called a no-deal Brexit. They're going to pull out of the European community with no economic deals in place and nothing in place. Uh, Parliament tried to force his hand. He tried effectively to shut down Parliament for a time. And that's prorogation. Right. Right? That's prorogation. Right. So what it is, is effectively the theory behind this is, is that Parliament sits when the Queen asks it to sit. Right. Mm -hmm. Historically, the Queen summoned Parliament, and indeed she still does. Uh, and because she's the person who asked it, asks it to sit, she mm -hmm. can also say, well, I don't need you anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, one time that happens uh, is when the Queen calls an election. Another time that happens is generally at the end of each year or some period of time when Parliament effectively has a little bit of a break and a reset, and the Queen comes in and sets the agenda for the next year for Parliament. Now, I say the Queen does it. She's effectively acting at the whim of the Prime Minister who advises her what to do. Right. Right. So the Prime Minister is facing a fair bit of criticism in the UK Parliament. He's worried about what's going to happen and the debate there, and he tells the Queen, I want to prorogue Parliament for a longer period than we ordinarily do, and the Queen says, OK, and she does it. Right. For about eight weeks in this case. Yeah. For about eight weeks. Mm. Now, some people don't like that, uh, so they take the government to court and they take them ultimately to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom who gave judgment that the order to prorogue Parliament was unlawful, right? And the, the order to prorogue Parliament is really one of those old... Queen powers. You're stopping me, Jim. How can it be unlawful? Well, that's right. If you, I mean, historically, the Queen literally Makes did it up. this, right? Yeah. It's, it's, She's the boss. It's, it's her prerogative power. Right. Right. The judgment, in my view, is astonishing. Um, I urge people who are interested in it to go and read it. You'd think a decision like that would have detailed historical analysis going back 400 years oh. uh, and things like that. It doesn't. What are they referencing? They reference a couple of occasions and very little else. They basically... It's undoubtedly political. Um, <clears throat> there's some gloss on it about not being political. Of course, they assert... The Supreme Court of the United Kingdom asserts that it's not being political. Mm. But ultimately, they come to the view that uh, the decision to parade Parliament will be unlawful if it has the effect of frustrating, quote, without reasonable justification the ability of Parliament to carry out its constitutional functions. So proroguing will always have the effect of frustrating the ability of Parliament 
to carry out its constitutional functions, right? That's because right. the whole point is you stop the capacity for Parliament to pass bills, you know, ask questions of ministers and require an answer, all those activities that Parliament does have to committees sit and consider questions and issues and whatever. Yeah. So the key nice. part is without reasonable justification, yeah. right? Yeah. It's yeah. the requirement for justification mm. that is new and is bizarre. Um, you don't I, need one. Well, you, you don't need one. Um, the question is, should you need one, I suppose? Sure. Um, and that's, that's a very interesting question. But historically, the power to parade Parliament has been used really as a kind of measure to stop things from getting out of hand. In 1831, King William IV literally walked into Parliament and paroded it. He said, they said to him, if you send a messenger, we're not going to let the messenger in. So he went in himself and he paroded Parliament and he did it because Parliament was refusing to pass what was the, one of the reform bills that gave fr- franchise, gave the ability to vote to thousands of more people because they were all in their nice little cushy positions. Mm. In 1907, West Australia did it in order to solve a supply issue. In 1997, John Major prorogued Parliament just to avoid a debate about something called the Cash for Questions Affair, so purely political reasons. Mm. Um, Christina Keneally did it in New South Wales in 2010 to avoid an inquiry into electricity privatisation. Mm. It's always been used for these political purposes. Mm-hmm. And the wheels haven't fallen off. Mm-hmm. So the question to my mind is why now does the Supreme Court of the UK say we need to change the law about this? Mm. I thought their... I mean, I agree with you that their reasoning was quite sparse and they didn't certainly cite oodles of authority. I mean, the, uh, the argument and then the decision was all in a relatively short period of time. And it was obviously an important case and quite pressing, so that was probably a reason why the reasons are fairly short. But I thought the the underlying theory behind the decision was quite interesting, and I don't know, I think quite sound, in the sense that it goes back to what is the respective relationship between the three branches of government? So what's the relationship between the executive and the parliament? And they rely on the fact that the executive <coughs> is drawn from the parliament, the executive is accountable to the parliament. And then they looked at the question um, of the motivation for the advice to prorogue and basically said, well, there can't have been a good reason because we're at this incredibly important juncture um, in terms of politics and, um, and so forth in the UK. He proposes now to prorogue parliament for almost two months to stop... 34 days, yeah. Uh, I thought it was... It was six seven to eight weeks. Seven weeks effectively, yeah. that was going to be lost. Yeah, so there was, was conferences that, that were going to be held in that time, party conferences, yeah. I think, that cut into some of that time. Yeah. yeah, and the decision then says, well, basically, in a circumstance where the executive is accountable to parliament and parliament is ultimately supreme, why is he proroguing parliament? He's doing it to avoid accountability and scrutiny. That is not um, a lawful reason to give that advice. And then it sort of boils down to the simple proposition that it's not lawful because it's inconsistent with the relationship between those two branches of government. Now, that, I think, is the controversial part. Why is that unlawful? Why does that cross from being undesirable, etc., to unlawful? And I don't know. I think it's one of those cases where you're at such a level of high public policy, someone has to make the decision. Someone has to say, 
this is inconsistent with constitutional principle and it's not comparable to a lot of other circumstances that are litigated. So even though I find the reasoning sparse, I find it quite attractive in the sense that it boils it down to basic propositions and the basic propositions to me seem pretty pretty important to respect. I mean, my fear... It fundamentally changes, in my view, the relationship of what Parliament is. So Parliament includes the Senate or the House of Lords in the UK. Here it includes the Senate. It includes the Commons or the House of Representatives here. And it includes the Queen. If you go to Section 1 of the Australian Constitution, the legislative power of the Commonwealth shall be vested in the Federal Parliament, which shall consist of the Queen, the Senate and the House of Representatives. That behaviour, that is, one part of Parliament, the Queen, telling the other part of Parliament not to sit, is completely political. And what we have is, if you start making judgments of that level of high policy, justiciable before courts, you have a series of nine unelected people making serious decisions of high policy. Is that any better than the Queen doing it? I don't know. It seems to me probably not, because the Queen has to worry about losing her head. She's got to worry about losing the monarchy. The judges don't have to worry about that kind of thing. Yeah, so there are other high-policy so-called decisions or um, categories that are kind of seen as being immune to review by the courts, yeah, like national security decisions or the war power. Yeah, so you think, Manny, that... In terms of declaring war, anyway. Right, right that this decision to prorogue is in that category and it's even though of course it's political um it's not the kind of decision that can be the subject of review i do i mean is it sure i mean the supreme court set out a way and a test that they can apply and you can always think up a test on how to do it but should it be justiciable it seems to me that there's no need for it to be justiciable. It's not like by this power, by proroguing Parliament, the Queen and the executive government can ultimately cast Parliament aside because at some point they're going to have to pass a supply bill. Without If Parliament doesn't sit for a year, there's no money left and the government collapses. So there's that as a minimum. But there's, the Parliament has a broader function than guaranteeing supply, doesn't it? Yeah, but I'm saying you can't prorogue Parliament indefinitely, so no. there's no chance of ultimate tyranny the government will go broke. Mm. So at most, it could be abused for 12 months. And in practice, that just wouldn't happen. Mm. And there have been examples where governors-general, uh, I don't know whether the, whether the monarch has ever done it, have, have said, no, we're not going to prorogue parliament. Say, for example, I think in um, Canada, uh, they said, no. The governor-general said, I'm not going to prorogue parliament until we've secured supply because government has to survive. Mm. It has to go on. What about um, uh, an example from the United States, the multiple shutdowns that have occurred as a result of, you know, uh, conflicts in, in their house? Uh, is it the same thing? No, I think it's different in the sense that I think those shutdowns have occurred because generally the Senate won't pass the supply bill or whatever the um, equivalent language is in the states. So yep. they won't pass the budget and therefore the government has to shut down because the government doesn't have money... Uh, to pay public servants and so forth. And I think in America it often comes about because one side of politics is saying there should be less expenditure uh, to reduce debt. They use it as a political And it's political, ultimately, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
in a similar way that, Manny, you're saying that these judges have used their authority as a political tool to stop Boris from a no-deal Brexit? Well, I, I don't know that I can go that far. But what I say is that my view is they've transgressed into a political space that they shouldn't have. Okay. Um, I don't know why they did it, um, but they did it. It's worth noting, in sort of a practical example of how weird this makes things, is we had a situation in this country where a Prime Minister was dismissed by a Governor-General acting on his reserve powers. It's Gough Whitlam. Mm -hmm. Now, that act has traditionally been seen as not justiciable and an, an aspect of sort of the prerogative powers of the Crown. That ultimately, to save the day, to keep government working, the monarch or the monarch's representative can come in and sort things out. Mm. Now, is that now justiciable in light of this judgment? I mean, there's an interesting sort of sort of aspect of the judgment, which is, I mean, obviously there's been a steady increase in the justiciability mm. of these sorts of decisions over the years, but uh, the decision draws a distinction between between examining through judicial review the validity of the exercise of the power per se. So, for example, looking at whether there's been an irrelevant consideration taken into account or any of those other well-established grounds of review. And that ultimately is not decided in terms of whether it's reviewable on those grounds. Uh, but they look at another aspect of it and say, well, what is justiciable and determinable certainly is the extent of the power. And so in that sense, all powers, whether they are stated to be justiciable or not, are justiciable in the sense that surely courts have to have the authority to determine the proper extent of the power. Because if you've extended the extent of the power, then you haven't actually exercised the power. And you get into this quite sort of esoteric and mind-bending sort of exercise. But A mind's already bent on yeah. it. Yeah. 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 yeah, this question of justiciability itself is not that simple. Yeah. Um, and they didn't find error in the decision in the sense that a court finds error on an appeal or in judicial review, they found that there was no power to exercise the power in that way. It exceeded the extent of the power. Yeah. Well, because there was no reasonable justification. Yeah, correct. And what they said was, we haven't been given a reasonable justification, which is a really odd thing if you think about it, because what there's nine judges sitting there, the government, the Queen and the government, who's ultimately in some sense a democratic government, the Prime Minister has been put in there by democratically elected people. Well. Is, well, I mean... They, sure. I'll come back to that. But he's been reviewed by these nine people mm -hmm. who say you have to give us a reasonable justification and in the absence of you doing that, we can overrule your decision. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with the Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. The outcome's not that bad, is it? I mean, if you're looking at, at the validity of process in terms of uh, people's democratic mandates, then surely you have to look at the outcome, and the outcome of the decision is not one that tends to undermine democracy mm -hmm. because the outcome 
It's and just that say, you have scrutiny and accountability to Parliament. Mm. It's well, not a dire outcome, surely. Well, I don't know. So one of the reasons why this happened is because traditionally, when Parliament and the, gov- and the executive government are having a blue, Parliament calls an election. That's the solution. It says, I don't have confidence in the Prime Minister. And the Queen then orders an election because things aren't working anymore. But they were reluctant to do that because Parliament was reluctant to do that because the ultimate result would likely have been a return of, the Bor- of Boris Johnson and a stronger push for the policy that Parliament didn't want. Right. So in that sense, did the Supreme Court come down on the side of democracy? Perhaps it didn't. Perhaps it came down on the side of the incumbent Parliament as opposed to the will of the people. Mm. Before we leave this topic, the other interesting thing that I sort of struck me was that so the proceedings are called Miller, that's the appellant, Gina Miller, and the Prime Minister and, and others. She's a business person, by the way. Yeah, so she's, she's just an individual who just has taken a view and she also instituted the litigation um, relating to Brexit, which is Miller number one, mm. where the issue in that case was whether or not um, the British government had authority to implement Brexit without the approval of Parliament. So could they withdraw from the treaty um, relating to the EU without an Act of Parliament authorising that? And, yeah, and then she's brought this litigation as well. I think it's a really interesting mm, it aspect is. of... And she has standing, presumably, because she's a citizen she's of the UK, stands to be affected by Brexit. And, exactly, mm. yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Earn a lot of money and then just spend it by well, involving yourself in public interest litigation for the rest yeah, of your life. Yeah, just original proceedings <laughs> in the High Court of Australia. Yeah. Just you could run a campaign that... with that money. Like, you know, yeah, they did yeah. have an election. Mm. You could have run a campaign in the opposite direction. I don't know. One wonders whether she'd have standing in a similar matter here. I, I mean, it sort of goes to the subject matter, doesn't it, in the sense that it's so momentous and changing to the nation that, mm. that I don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly how standing's done there in those matters, but almost everyone has a huge interest in it, I would have thought. Yeah. These aren't private interests that you're indicating. It's mm. very broad. Welcome back to the Wigs, ladies and gentlemen. The next topic of our discussion will be the age of criminal responsibility. And my learned friend, Felicity Graham here, is going to take the lead on this one. Take it away, Felicity. Yeah, so Jim, this topic um, has assumed some importance in recent times in Australia. There's a move on to consider increasing the age of criminal responsibility. So... Um, that's the principle that sets the age at which a child can be prosecuted for a criminal offence. And the Latin maxim or Latin terms that are often referred to in this arena are dolly incapax and dolly capax, which basically means having the capacity or not to form criminal intent. Okay. And in um, New South Wales, um, the age of criminal responsibility um, starts at 10. Oh, okay. And then up to the age of 14, there's uh, 
this rebuttable presumption. So the presumption is that up until the age of 14, a child can still not form criminal intent, but that can be rebutted by the prosecution with some evidence. Oh, okay. Uh, And it's... um, Yeah, it's the rationale for this different approach to children to adults is that some recognition that children, particularly these younger ages, either um, under 10 or um, between 10 and 14, are not sufficiently intellectually and morally developed to be able to appreciate the difference between right and wrong. Right. Um, and so they lack that capacity to for yeah. mens rea or criminal mind. Right, right. And I just before, I just want to stop you there. I have a very limited understanding in the civil world. Is it correct that if you form a uh, a contract with a with a person under the age of 18, they that person can just break the contract no matter what. Yeah, so there's a concept in civil law of being a person under legal incapacity. Yeah. And in a range of different ways, that means that uh, children and certain other people um, in certain categories are not able to participate in the world of civil law. So, for example, a child can't commence civil proceedings by themselves. They need um, a tutor or a guardian or someone to institute the proceedings on their behalf. Right, right. Um, Yes. Yeah, but in criminal law, um, it's yeah, it's the case that under the common law, from the age of seven, um, children are recognised as being capable of uh, forming criminal intent, intent uh, with that rebuttable presumption up to fourteen. Mm. Um, but in New South Wales and in other jurisdictions, by statute, that seven-year limit has been raised up to ten. Okay, and why is this concerning? Yeah, so there are some... There's a move on to increase the age because particularly of research in relation to the development of the brain that suggests that um, particularly the parts of the brain like the frontal lobe that concern decision-making abilities, consequential thinking... Um, risk-taking behaviour are really not developed um, in the human brain until well into your 20s. And so there's an increasing recognition that um, children as young um, as 10, 11, 12, 13, 14... um, shouldn't be exposed to the consequences of the criminal justice system because their brains are just not developed enough to wear the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. Though it's interesting because the experts, certainly some that I've heard talk about the brain developing to a certain point where you might think the child has the sort of understanding of the difference between right and wrong at 15, 16 mm. is apparently quite a significant shift, yet no one's talking about increasing it to 15, 16, are they? Not in Australia, but if you look around the world, the ages are quite disparate in terms of the age at which um, children are um, held to the criminal standard. So, for example, um, in Netherlands, Canada, Ireland, the age is 12, Austria and Spain, it's 14, Sweden, 15, 
Cuba and, Ar- Cuba and Argentina, 16. In New Zealand, they have a sort of um, dual approach. So it's 14 except for murder or manslaughter where it's 10. And then certain other very serious offences can be brought against 12 or 13-year-olds. But effectively for most crimes in New Zealand, it's 14. Mm. Um, And then I think in some other countries, um, like in Belgium, Luxembourg, it's 18. Portugal, it's 16. A bunch of other Scandinavian countries, 15. The international average is 14. Mm. So does that mean uh, you, if someone commits murder at the age of 10, they're in a jurisdiction that uh, recognises someone at the age of 10 as uh, uh, having criminal intent, they can be tried as as an adult? There are sometimes still different rules about how they're tried and about how um, they can be dealt with in terms of where they can be detained and so on. We were looking at a case this week from the US where there was a nine-year-old boy that was in um, court where the allegation was that he'd set a fire Mm -hmm. um, in a a caravan park or a sort of um, residential area where... Um, a number of his relatives died. Five people died as a result of this sort of house fire um, or fire in a dwelling. Right. Um, And he was in court and the judge was trying to explain to him what murder and arson mean and his lawyer was saying things like, he doesn't understand what the word alleged means. Right. Um, Right. His feet didn't touch the ground when he was sitting in the chair. Right. Um, So, yeah... But he, I think, is in a situation where even if he's convicted or found guilty, um, he can only be sentenced to a form of probation yeah. rather than, say, a term of imprisonment. Yeah. But and I assume in countries where the age of criminal responsibility is as high as 18 that they have other non-punitive ways of dealing with dangerous juveniles, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure that they don't just kill people and they're completely left alone by the government. I'm sure there would be civil commitment and things like that, right? Yeah, well, there are varying different approaches. So, for example, in Scotland, um, Scotland does not have a prison service or juvenile detention service for children under the age of 16 at all. Um, It's transitioning away from having any person under the age of 18 in prison. And... With a population of about 5.4 million people, last year only 24 children were in custody. Wow. And they have this mm. welfare approach that is just completely wow. difficult. Yeah, well, so, for example, in Australia, the on average detention is 980 young people on any yeah. given night. Um, 60% of which are unsentenced and 59% of which are Indigenous. But are we talking about a loss of civil liberties for these children who are not in these criminal... So, sure, you're 14, you're in a country that has a 16-year limit, you commit a crime, you now no longer get the benefit of a trial but we go in some other way to curtail your liberty, control your conduct? Is that what we're talking about? That's what I'm wondering because surely there must be a way of dealing with Highly dangerous people that are under 18. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's there's different models, um, some which have 
still, say, residential settings for children, say, in, in Scotland, they have still um, using a welfare and therapeutic approach, places where children who are highly vulnerable and at risk of engaging in kind of dangerous behaviour or engaging in dangerous behaviour um, can be looked after and... Um, so in a sense, we're talking helped. about the loss of rights. Because you lose your right to defend yourself at a criminal trial and you find yourself put into some sort yeah. of quasi-custodial setting. I suspect that's right. Yeah. yeah. In some instances. It's... Though you're not exposed to punitive detention or the ongoing consequences of criminal conviction, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And but at quite a cost. Maybe. I mean, you look at the cost for children in our system here in New South Wales or in other jurisdictions in Australia, and you have children as young as 10 being arrested by police, charged with usually quite minor offences, and then because they're put into this criminal justice process, the process itself ends up being so much more punishment than is ever warranted by the original offence through onerous bail conditions that then inevitably get breached pre-hearing um, detention and you end up often in this situation as a lawyer in this really compromised position because your client might have a highly viable defence to the charge either by way of the Dolly Incapax defence where there's no evidence to rebut the presumption or other some other substantive defence mm. to the charge but the case is taking so long because that's the criminal justice process that they are already experiencing way more punishment through remand and curfew onerous conditions, the impact on their families at home where the police turn up every night checking on them multiple times, etc., etc. And so there's this real tension to just say, okay, well, look, you know, you also have an option to plead guilty to this offence mm-hmm. and it'll be over and done with and you'll be let out mm-hmm. and the process will be over. But I mean, sure, I accept all of that, but that's really a question of effectively police misconduct and mismanagement of resources by courts rather than a principled issue. I mean, if if the... And I, and I think we all know, I remember kids out in Wilcannia who were 10 years old, 11 years old, jumping fences to go in pools to swim on a hot day and being arrested for trespass by the police. That's police misconduct. We've got a sort of political mechanism to deal with that and it should be dealing with it. To change fundamentally something that the common law has said, you know, this is how the law should be for about 400 years. And it's interesting that the common law beat the science to these sorts of understandings. Mm. Let's call it one year or two years one way or another, but the common law, what, 17th century, said 14 is the age where after that you're criminally responsible, and the science suggests there's a big shift there. Yeah, the common... there are a lot of neuroscientists, though, that would say, look, oh, their yeah. brain, particularly their male brain... Changes sorry, at 30, guys, right? No, no, um, isn't well advanced until... Or isn't fully formed or, until yeah. late 20s. 35 right, in this case. No, no. But yeah, yeah. I saw something the other day, seriously, that suggested 41, right, which actually rang true for me. Yeah, 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 it's only in the past few years. I don't even know what you're saying right now. Can I just come back to that? Because the common law says that there's a principle that says that the turning point principle particularly for male offenders in their late 20s in and sentencing 30, in, yeah, yeah, in sentencing, not for liability no but ultimately. It, the common law figured that out without recourse to neuroscience and if we, i mean at some point we need a way to deal with people 
if we're going to say men's brains haven't developed properly by the age of 26, and so we should excuse their murder of people, I mean, nobody's going to agree to that Mm. proposition. You're also talking about 400 years of common law figuring that out, and then the invention of school in the last, what, one, two, you know, like since the Industrial Revolution, right? So has that had had a factor on um, uh, uh, the criminal responsibility of children? That's really interesting that you raised that point, Jim, because Stephen and I were involved in a case where a 12-year-old broke into a country fire station um, and took a computer Mm -hmm. and took uh, some rulers and balloons and cans of soft drink and ran down the street of the country town, sort of throwing the balloons around, uh, went home, spoke to his cousin, said, look what I've got. Um, I got them down at the fire station. And he was talking about the red trucks. He was very excited to tell his cousin that he'd been in the fire station and seen all the cool red trucks. I was in there with all the big red trucks, (laughs) he said. Um, And the magistrate that first decided the um, case said, look, I've taken into account the young person's maturity He is not that young, and by the age of 12, he should be well aware that you cannot break into fire stations, particularly in the modern era of universal education, access to the internet, television, radio, and so on. Mm -hmm. So applying this sort of objective standard that we've now got schooling, that's a universal thing, um, it's... um, It should fashion young people into a life of non-crime. And it was quite a, a sort of misplaced assumption in the circumstances of this boy who had an intellectual disability, um, highly disadvantaged, and all of this is in the judgment, it's all on the public record. Um, he was not someone who had had the benefit uh, necessarily okay. of mass education, mm. exposure to high-quality education, um, all sorts of problems that he had or sort of tended. Yeah. So it was quite a misplaced okay. um, objective test, I suppose, mm-hmm. to apply to him. Yeah, and then we appealed, appeal, didn't we? Yes, yeah. on appeal, the court said, no, you can't apply this objective test. You can't say, well, schooling's available to children, um, therefore they this child should have known. You've got to look at actually the individual child and what evidence Mm. there is particular to the individual subjectively to demonstrate that they had the capacity to understand that what they were doing was wrong. Yeah, so... It's certainly an argument, though, that in terms of the public policy debate is put against the proposition that the age of criminal responsibility should be increased, and that is that children are growing up faster than ever before, they have access to all this education, all this information. If anything, it should go down rather than up. Mm. Um, that's certainly an argument that's put. Mm. Can I tie this in to a question that was submitted to us from a listener from of the Wigs? Uh, one of our fans out there, in inverted commas, James from Waterloo, has asked uh, something he's curious, curious about. Um, is the reason for different ages of maturity, for example, the age of criminality is what we're talking about, the age of sexual consent and the age of voting and drinking, why are they all different? I'm guessing he's referring to New South Wales. Mm. Uh, yeah, and other places. Other places, of course. Where, say, for example, in the US, you can't drink legally until you're 21 right. in some states. But Criminal responsibility is much earlier. Right. 
um, age of sexual consent does vary around the world, but it's usually in that those sort of yeah. mid-teenage years. I mean, different questions, right? Like, in, if you're talking about dolly income packs and the age of criminal responsibility, you're talking about a legal test which poses the question, does the evidence prove that this child knew that this act was seriously wrong in the criminal sense. So it's asking whether the child had a particular state of mind or knowledge. So that's the sort of legal test for criminal responsibility. Whereas with drinking, it's been set at a certain age, I suppose, on the basis of the harm that it causes, thoughts about at what age are you capable physiologically of coping with alcohol, uh, the desirability of criminalising you know, people above the age of, of 18, mm. for example. I mean, they're quite different questions, mm. I think, and one is posing a very broad test which applies to everyone in terms of criminal liability yeah. and the other um, um, is more of a permissive law, mm. I suppose, about when you can do a certain particular activity. Yeah, I had a case that... A case came to mind when I was looking at James's question. So it was this case where... A 14-year-old boy um, had sex with a 12-year-old girl in Western Australia. Now, they had sex, um, in fact, consensually, but because of the age of consent in relation to sexual intercourse, neither of them at law could actually consent. Um, The 14-year-old boy was charged with the criminal offence of having sexual intercourse with a child under 13. Uh Is 13 the age of consent? No, no, it, that was the oh, offence provision. Right, okay. 16, generally. Yeah, okay, I just want to make sure. Okay, please continue. Sorry. Yeah, so it's usually an aggravating factor in sexual offending the younger the child is. So okay, the, right. But the particular uh-huh. offence provision was... Excuse my non-wig ignorance. Sorry, Chloe, please continue. Sorry. No, not at all, not at all. Yeah, so he's 14, she's 12. Neither of them can at-law consent. Only he is charged, even though he is technically a victim as well of having of her having sexual intercourse with him because Mm. he couldn't consent either. Mm. She was presumably not charged because there was some decision that Dolly Incapax couldn't be rebutted in Mm. relation to her because she was 12. He didn't have Dolly Incapax available to him because he'd already turned 14. So he was found guilty, sentenced to a youth community-based order for six months. But as a result of the offence... When he moved to New South Wales, and there's a national scheme in this regard, he was entered onto the Child Protection Register here. Yeah. Which um, sets very onerous requirements on anyone subject to that register. Is this the sex offenders thing? Right. It's a a registered... It's a list that's designed to allow the police to more highly monitor persons that have been identified through... um, a sort of mandatory provision in the law about whether you've been found guilty of certain offences that then qualifies you for being someone who's a risk to children in relation to sexual offending. Now, there was no suggestion um, beyond this one act that this boy was more broadly a risk to (laughs) children. He had sex consensually with a girl of a similar age to him. But he got put on that um, register, which um, operated on him for at least seven and a half years, where he's got a whole bunch of requirements to report where he lives, 
um, ha- needs permission to do a whole range of different things in terms of... And how um, old is he at this age, at this stage of the... Yeah, so he was 14 when he committed the offence and then basically after the finding of guilt goes on this register okay. for the next seven, years, seven and a half years yeah. or so. Do you stay on the register for life? How does the register work? Depends on how serious your offence oh, okay, is. Right. Yeah, but the offence that he committed qualified him... Um, if you were an adult, to go on the register for 15 years, but right. they halve the number in New South Wales for children. Okay. Um, and then there's this other regime in New South Wales where the police can go around and collect the DNA of people that are on the child protection register. And he didn't have his DNA on the police system. And three and a half years after the offence... No further offending relevant to this question of needing to protect children from sexual offending. A police officer applies to the Children's Court in New South Wales to obtain his DNA. And the magistrate at that point um, refused the application and said, look, the provisions of this Act have extended well beyond what was ever intended in the first place. I don't think anyone envisaged that young people engaging in certain actions with each other by agreement between them, but in circumstances where the law says that the girl cannot consent but the boy is committing a criminal offence, when they're both the same age, it seems um, a little unusual, to say the least, that, mm. that it should apply to him... I'm going to refuse the application and um, I'm not persuaded that this man falls anywhere near that category of being someone who needs to be on the register by way of having his DNA taken from him. And because he was still a child at that point when the application was made, he was 17 and I think nine months or something, he couldn't consent to having his DNA put on the database because children, that's another kind of area where the law recognises that if a police officer wants to obtain a person's DNA and they are a child, they cannot consent until court order is required. Oh, right. So that application was refused. Then a couple of years later, he's now 19. Again, no change in circumstances in terms of further offending to suggest that there's... Um, any child protection concerns. A police officer makes another application. He's now an adult. Um, it was the same magistrate, curiously, um, who perhaps hadn't remembered their earlier view of the case um, and just granted the application. Um, wow. So... So they're caught up in the system, not necessarily just when they're children. Totally. On, yeah. Totally. And then that DNA is on the database and can be used effectively for any purpose that the police wish in the context of investigating any crimes. Um, um, so that's certainly a strong argument to increase it, isn't it? Yeah, because the consequences are just so pervasive and long-lasting. And, and the rationale, one of the key rationales for increasing it is that children who commit even dangerous acts or do things that reflect their lack of kind of decision-making capacity generally grow out of that behaviour. Like, they actually do mature into people mm. that don't engage in that kind of behaviour. Mm. But on the other hand... the lowest rate of basic 
of reappearance. Right, of right. But on the other hand... A lot of kids are one-off there. There's a lot of evidence to say that once you even spend one night in detention or yeah, get arrested... Violent. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's a real danger that we're actually creating more crime through the sort of over-criminalisation of children at the younger stages in their lives because we're depriving them of their chance to actually grow up and then go on and not commit... Mm. Um, antisocial behaviour. It strikes me as just policy. Like, that's just an insipid police officer who thought, we'll put this person on the register. It's not... No, no, they were on the register by virtual Some insipid yeah, idiot. But, I, but well, even being on the register let's have, is... Let's throws up their name. Yeah, well, let's have a bit of discretion in like some brains. Yeah, yeah but even being on the on the child protection register is a really onerous set of circumstances. It does, because as soon as you, for example, go on a holiday to see your family in Mildura and you haven't sought permission to cross the border to do that, you're committing an offence and you get prosecuted for that. Why are they being put on the register, though? Because why not change the law that puts them on the register? Sure. Why alter fundamental rights? I think there are a lot of laws that need to be changed. Sure, but all of these laws have been rushed through under political pressure to kind of say, you know, these people are bad, pedophiles are bad, and we're going to bash them, and the government hasn't done their job thinking about it. I don't know whether it's worth, in those circumstances, going and passing another law to deal with the shitty laws that have been passed... Or the right response is, let's fix the shitty laws, let's give people discretion where, where but it But we all know that discretion, particularly by police officers, is just not well exercised. And the trends are just going to more and more punitive approaches. So, like, in the Royal Commission in the Northern Territory that looked at the detention of young people in um, the north of Australia... Despite the, this is one of the findings. Despite the laws designed to uphold the principle that arrest should be used as a last resort, police are increasingly choosing arrest over the option of issuing a summons. Mm. In the last 10 years, the number of arrests has spiked. In 2015-16, the police made 1,457 arrests of children and young people. In 2006-07, they made 423 arrests. Some children were arrested at school whilst participating in class. Mm, I've seen and, Yeah. Mm. But what do we and do? So a 15-year-old stabs his mate because he touched his Nintendo. What do we do with a 15-year-old? What's the process? I agree. I mean, that, I sort of have two views about this that sort of tend in different directions. One part of me says we should forget about talking about increasing the age because it's politically impossible and the community will never accept it. And even if somehow it got through Parliament, it, it, it would be like the bail laws where in 2013 where you pass mm. a big brand new bail act mm. and then an unfortunate incident happens and then there's public pressure. So I'm talking there about how Barry O'Farrell's government passed a new bail act in 2013 that introduced a uniform presumption in favour of bail. Uh, Defence lawyers liked it a lot. Right. Then some people got bail... Uh, the community wasn't happy about it or certain segments oh, of right. it. And then there was pressure on the politicians to change the law and it right. changed. And I could see a similar dynamic in respect of Dolly Incapax. If we increase the age of criminal responsibility, I can see a sort of inevitable backlash. Right. Uh, my other view, which tends in the other direction, is that it should go up because the current state of the law is not being respected. And my experience certainly, you know, doing children's court in Western New South Wales in the past with the ALS, Aboriginal Legal Service, is that Dolly Incapax um, is not popular um, in many local courts 
and police don't nothing to try to yeah. Police don't investigate it properly, so they'll arrest or charge a kid aged uh, between ten and thirteen, which means that they have the burden of proof of proving in a criminal hearing that the child had criminal capacity or knew that it was seriously wrong in the criminal sense. They'll do no investigation of the type that can normally prove that matter. For example, school records to show the kid's been warned before, uh, get police statements from police officers who've cautioned them before, uh, things like that, a psychologist who can say that the child had a certain cognitive capacity, uh, the child knew that it was seriously wrong in the criminal sense. It all just tends to be ignored. And then my experience often um, as an ALS lawyer was... You then turn up to court and say to the magistrate, well, there's no prima facie case in this matter and there's no case for the child to answer because there is no evidence going to Dolly Incapax. And often that argument would not succeed even though there patently was no evidence going to it. So the law on Dolly Incapax now... I don't think is often respected. I don't think it's widely understood. Yeah, and you see, for example, I think this is quite a, quite common in the Northern Territory, that there's this expectation that if Dolly Incapax is going to be raised, then there's some onus on the defence to prove Dolly Incapax. Mm, or it and should be flagged getting, six weeks in advance or something. Getting reports to prove that the child doesn't have the capacity yeah. and it's... But are we talking, are we talking about... Are we talking about moving to a position where... Not only do we not have to think about Dolly Incapax anymore, but we don't have to think about whether or not the child did it. Police officers mm. suspects on pretty strong grounds that the child's guilty, picks them up, drives them to the re-education centre. Civil commitment. Of some Civil sort. commitment. Mm. No longer a right to a jury if it's a serious matter. Um, sorry, you're done. Mm. Mm. There's something very crude about just determining it on the basis of age. I mean, obviously... Youth is, you know, ubiquitous to all people so everyone can understand it. Mm. But it's an incredibly crude way to set it. I mean, another way would be uh, to get rid of the presumption, which legally is quite complicated, have a uniform age, whether it's 12 or 14. Um, Another way is to do it by offence type. So have a presumption or have no criminal capacity for, you know, less serious criminal matters, but uh, retain criminal liability for children from 10 onwards There's for really serious offences. Uh, consequence of that, though, isn't there, in terms of being able to engage in charge negotiations? So Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you then had a child, say, charged with manslaughter, you could be limited from having a plea negotiation where they plead guilty to assault causing actual bodily harm because they're deemed not to be liable for that. Sure, sure. But I don't know, it's a very, um, I mean, by its nature, it's a crude across-the-board sort of measurement. And we've, um, you know, you get those cases as well where you have adults or people that are are well above the age of 14 and through either intellectual disability or other circumstance, their actual capacity is much lower than, say, some 12 or 13-year-olds. Oh, completely. And, I mean, the law doesn't normally concern itself with whether people know that conduct is seriously wrong in the criminal sense. I mean, the law concerns itself uh, with intent um, or knowledge or whatever the mens rea is for the offence, and the law concerns itself with whether the person is fit to plead, which means they have a basic level of understanding, and the law concerns itself with whether a person is insane. Uh, But this concept of seriously wrong in the criminal sense and knowledge of that is peculiar to Dolly Incapax. And a bit anomalous in the sense that, as Flick's sort of suggesting, you... I mean, I've represented adults who have less capacity than many children of 13. And I've represented many adults who I don't think understood that a thing was seriously wrong in the criminal sense because they're Mm. incapable of it. Mm. But they meet the basic 
threshold of being fit to plead mm. because understand the role of the judge, understand the, the role of the jury, etc. And they're not insane in the sense that they have a mental no, illness no. that leads to a heightened state of you know lack of understanding. Just the intellectual capacity to understand. Mm, so it's a, it's a, it's yeah, quite anomalous, and these across the board rules are quite crude. But I don't really know what the other answer is. I mean, the line has to be drawn somewhere. Let the common law evolve. Mm. That's my answer. It's not going to work. It's always not imperfect, but it learns and it grows and it changes. Let's mm. not get in there and meddle. So Dolly Incapax is not popular. Uh, but it's more popular than, say, Dolly Parton was in the 70s. <laughs> we'll be right back after this break. <laughs> okay, welcome back. We're here to wrap up the show with fun things, the topic uh, where we go into uh, sometimes legal-related issues, but we just talk about fun stuff that we will be experiencing over the course of the month until you hear us for the next episode. And we'll start with Felicity Graham. What is your fun thing that is approaching? Jim, I am heading to Nauru. Wow. And I'm looking forward to a swim in the Anabari Harbour and maybe going flying fish fishing, which is one of the most fun things I've ever done. Okay, cool. You go out at night, um, you sort of wedge yourself in between two planks of wood at the bow of a small boat, wear a helmet with a really big flashlight on it. And you have a long pole with a net on it at the end and um, the skipper kind of zooms around. Speedboat, like a stuff. Yeah, it's like a little tinny. And then these flying fish just start zooming through the air oh, wow. and if you oh. train your light on them they get stunned by the light oh, and they wow. drop into the water so and it's a nighttime activity nighttime activity right. and then you throw the net on the water scoop up the fish hopefully yeah awesome. um and the main challenge is to beat the dolphins to the fish right. because they also use your light to then go and find the Fly oh, fish. Wow. It's really, really That's cool. Incredible. Very so fun. You're obviously going for a holiday. I'm going for work. What's happening? Uh, I am going to appear in the Nauru Supreme Court for the remaining accused in the Nauru 19 case. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, good luck with that, Felicity. Stephen Lawrence, what is your fun thing for the duration of uh, the month ahead? Yeah, look, probably the most enjoyable thing uh, that I've done in the last month was I've been involved in quite a controversial matter. Oh, yes. And. Um, attracted a lot of media publicity and I um, left uh, the premises where this matter was heard okay. uh, with my client and as happens as people leave this particular place we were mobbed uh, by journalists and TV cameras okay. and this is, this is Dubbo Courthouse isn't no it? it's not the Dubbo Courthouse okay, right, right. and my client uh, very much against advice quite a difficult uh, client in some ways <laughs> stopped and said to the journalist I'd like to say a few words Right. And my heart was in my throat, of course, because the last thing you, you know you want your client doing is giving an impromptu oh, press, press conference press. after a proceeding. And he said to the journalists, my lawyer's great and my lawyer has a new podcast. It's called The Wigs. You should all check it out. No, you are. No, you are. Thank you for that, client. And I couldn't keep my straight face at that point. <laughs> uh, Emmanuel Kirkasharian, what is your fun thing for the month ahead? I bought an e-bike. Oh last God. week. It's the most amazing thing I've ever bought. 
Um, it's so much fun. Is this where you pedal with your fingers? It's your, no, no, no. You, you actually have to pedal, and I, I turned down the guy who was, you know, offering to make certain modifications that may or may not have been legal. Um, I turned him down, but it's so much fun. I find myself overtaking these super fit people going up hills, and there's a lot of Schadenfreude in that. It's and motor vehicle under New South Wales, well, no, not if, or doesn't it? Not if there are certain restrictions that are on the oh. on its abilities, uh, restrictions which I chose not to have removed. Uh, and I can ride for three hours on the thing, and it's so great. So I'm just going to do this that. So what it is, it's got a battery, and it's got a motor on the pedals that helps you pedal oh, the bike. Okay, right, right, right. Uh, but so this is a lazy person's push bike. Yeah, right. Oh, it's so yeah. good, yeah. yeah right. I mean, you look at me, I can ride, there's no way I could ride for 10 minutes without <laughs> Uh Is anyone going to ask me? Jim. <laughs> what are you up to? Okay, it's coming you. up. Finally. Goodness gracious. Um, I've written a scripted audio podcast series. I don't know if you guys had known this, all right? I'm, it's, I'm, I'm keeping it under the radar. It's launching on November the 7th. It's called Arena. It's a scripted audio show. I don't and think we really allow personal plugs at this stage, do we? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm setting the precedent, right? Okay. Hey, well, um, last, last month's plug of my mum's stock. Yeah, come off it. That was completely accidental. Yeah, sorry, but it happened. Sorry, I withdraw so, my comment. There is a precedent. Withdraw. I'll allow it. So, so scripted podcast. Yeah, scripted podcast. Uh, if you want to listen to it, it's just go to jimmins.com. I set it up today, so it's ready to rock. Wait, there's a jimmins.com. There's a jimmins.com, <laughs> and you just go there and you can listen to the show. It's uh, it's going to go for four episodes over four weeks. I worked really hard on it, and I want everyone... I'll tell you what, anyone who's a listener of the weeks, first episode's free. Awesome. Excellent. <laughs> All right, well Very done. Very good. Thank you, everyone, for participating in this. I know the wigs are busy, but I appreciate your time and coming in and talking about these serious matters. Thank you to the thousands of listeners who have participated in the wigs so far. We're humbled by you all. Uh, and we're, I'm sure it's not me just re- just checking all the mistakes. I'm sure there's actually a thousand of you out there listening. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. We'll see you at episode four. Take care. Have a great one, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.